a 35-year-old chef vanished on her way to work one morning. The media quickly picked up the case of the young and pretty missing woman. But when an investigator spoke of a supposed secret life, public perception changed and altered the course of the investigation. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back if you've been here before. Most of my listeners are repeat customers, so thank you so much for spending time with me each week. This is an episode that will have an after show. Jules from Riddle Me That will be joining me on Wednesday to discuss this case and some of the issues around it in more depth. So watch for that coming up. There were a few long-form articles I used in my research, including from the BBC and The Guardian. The Find Claudia website was also another major source, and all of my sources are linked in the show notes. Let's get started. Claudia Lawrence was born in February 1974 to parents Peter and Joan. She joined her big sister, Allie, who was three years old when she was born. The family had a comfortable life in Moulton, North Yorkshire, where Claudia and her sister attended a nearby private school. Claudia was more active than academic, though she still liked school, particularly the social aspects. She was also passionate about horseback riding as a child and into her adulthood. As an adult, Claudia pursued culinary arts, and she worked her way up the way chefs do, learning and growing in each new kitchen until she was hired as a chef at Goodrick College, which is part of the University of York. Claudia bought a house in York, not far from the city center. She was on a regular and fairly predictable schedule of going to work, going home, and then meeting with friends or family a few nights a week. Claudia lived about three miles from her job, so normally she would drive there. But in March 2009, Claudia was having to walk since her car was in the shop. On Wednesday, March 18th, 35-year-old Claudia Lawrence worked her usual shift, which started at 6 a.m. Around 2.40 p.m., Claudia headed off on foot to walk home. As she walked, a friend saw her and picked her up, dropping her off at home between 2.50 and 3.05. That evening, before 8.30 p.m., Claudia had spoken with both of her parents on the phone separately. Peter and Joan had divorced a few years before. When Claudia chatted with her mom, they talked about the usual things, a TV show they were both watching, and about Claudia's plans to go see her mother that weekend for Mother's Day. Claudia also texted a friend to firm up some plans that they had to get together. A bit after 9 p.m., a friend of Claudia's who lived on the island of Cyprus texted her. It is unclear if Claudia even read this text, and it's possible she was already in bed since she did get up early in the morning to get ready for work and then walk three miles there. The next morning, Claudia was expected at work for her usual 6 a.m. start time, but she didn't show up. When her manager tried to call her cell phone mid-shift, Claudia didn't answer. That evening, Claudia's friend Susie waited for her to arrive at a local pub, as they had previously arranged. Susie texted Claudia when she didn't show, but did not get a response. 
So then she tried to call her, and this call went straight to voicemail, like the phone was off. Susie brushed it off, assuming Claudia had forgotten or maybe she had already fallen asleep after work. The next day, March 20th, Susie tried to call again, and again, she got Claudia's voicemail immediately. This was not normal, so Susie called Claudia's father, Peter, and told him she couldn't reach Claudia and that she was getting worried. Peter called the university and found out that Claudia had never made it to work the day before. So he headed straight to York to meet with Susie and check Claudia's house together, letting themselves in with Peter's spare key. And they found her house in perfect order. The backpack Claudia usually took to work was missing, as was her phone and her work uniform. So it actually looked like she had headed to work as planned, but Peter knew she had never made it there. Peter then called 999, the UK's emergency services number. Peter was a little worried that the police were going to tell him to wait another day or two, see if Claudia showed up, she was an adult, she could do what she wanted, that sort of thing. But he got the opposite response, thankfully. An entire team of police officers showed up at Claudia's home and began searching the path between her house and the university. The fear was that something had happened while she was walking to work on the 19th, and now it had been more than 24 hours. The police pulled the CCTV footage they had available along that path, and they did see Claudia walking that route between home and work on the 18th, both to and from work but they did not see her on that path on the 19th. They also saw her leave her house shortly after she got home on the 18th, apparently to mail something. She then walked back to her home a little after three, and that is the last time Claudia was seen on CCTV. She then had those calls with her parents, and that was the last contact. The investigators believed early on that the evidence pointed to Claudia leaving her home on the morning of the 19th for her 45-minute walk to work. This would have meant she would have left by about 5.15. The CCTV cameras that caught her on the 18th didn't pick her up on the 19th, so she either didn't make it that far in her walk or she at least didn't make it that far on foot. It's possible someone picked her up by car. A witness did come forward and said he saw a man and a woman talking at 5.35 in the morning at the Melrose Gate Bridge. The man was wearing a dark hoodie and he was smoking a cigarette that he had in his left hand. The witness said the woman looked like Claudia Lawrence and the timing was right. She would have been at that point around that time had she walked to work that morning. Since she wasn't seen on the CCTV cameras that were not far from there, she may have gotten into a vehicle at that point. That's one theory, at least. Another promising witness was a woman who saw a man and a woman next to a parked vehicle near the university around the time Claudia should have been there for work. She said they were arguing. Though both sightings do have strengths, particularly the timeline and because they both described the man similarly, neither of these sightings have been confirmed. Claudia's phone records were another avenue pursued. 
On the morning she missed work, her manager called her about halfway into her shift, so around 10 a.m. He left a voicemail. Then the phone was switched off later at 12.08 p.m., so it was turned off four hours after Claudia didn't show up at work and a few hours before Susie called to see where she was. Based on the records from the cell phone company, the phone was not smashed or thrown into a river somewhere because the phone was able to send a signal to the phone carrier that it was powering off. This is called an explicit detachment. If a phone is broken or suddenly disconnects, it doesn't send those messages to the phone company. So the phone, as much as the phone can be cognizant of anything, knew it was powering down, meaning it was likely turned off or possibly it was running out of battery and it sent that explicit detachment signal. The entire morning, until the phone was turned off, it was in the York area. Because Claudia's work and home were only three miles apart, and this was before super accurate GPS in phones, they couldn't tell much more than that. They couldn't say whether the phone was at her home, at her work, or halfway between them. While the police were searching for evidence, the media picked up the case and it became front page news really quickly. The friends and family of Claudia were not prepared for the spotlight, which I think few families are ready for it. The police told the media that they were investigating this as an abduction. They began running a picture of Claudia on all the news cycles, but this picture did bother her mother, Joan, a bit. Claudia previously had lightened her hair but had been wearing it darker prior to her disappearance. So the fear was that this photo being run wasn't up to date enough to get solid witness sightings. On March 25th, a week after Claudia was last seen, the police announced they believed she came to harm by someone she knew, and then they released the last CCTV footage of Claudia, hoping it would bring in a lead. Then in mid-May, they released another bit of some CCTV footage. This was of a man seen at 5.07 a.m. near Claudia's house. Claudia's house sat on a main road near a corner. That little side street leads to an alley that goes behind Claudia's house. What the CCTV footage picked up was a man walking towards that alley. About a minute later, he came back into frame and headed towards the main road. The police asked this man to come forward so he could be cleared because the time of being that close to Claudia's house was suspicious since it was around the time she should have been leaving for work. And if he wasn't there waiting on Claudia to leave her house, maybe he saw someone who was. So the police really wanted him to come forward and explain why he was there, what, if anything, he saw, and possibly rule him in or out as a suspect. But he has never been identified. On June 2, 2009, 11 weeks after Claudia's disappearance, the case got a huge media boost on an episode of BBC's Crime Watch. This show airs information on cases as well as runs reenactments in the hope that they'll jog someone's memory. 
Detective Superintendent Ray Galloway appeared on the show, and he was asked about Claudia's private life a bit. I'm going to read the quote verbatim rather than trying to summarize it. Galloway said, quote, As the investigation has developed, it's become apparent that some of Claudia's relationships had an element of complexity and mystery to them. I'm certain that some of those relationships were not known to her family or friends, end quote. So that's what he said. The way it came across was that he was saying Claudia had some sort of secret life with secret and complex relationships, and suddenly the reporting shifted, and the tabloid tone started appearing. Claudia was a 35-year-old single woman. The idea that everyone in her life would know everyone she slept with is actually a little odd if you think about it. It isn't unusual to be private about your private life, but you certainly wouldn't know that by the tabloid reporting on Claudia. Galloway did say he didn't mean his statement to come across the way it did, and I think what he meant was that Claudia had relationships they were still uncovering as they tried to figure out who would have a motive to bring harm to her. He didn't mean it to sound as sordid as it ended up being taken. Claudia's father, Peter, very quickly tried to correct this perception in the media. He said that Claudia would have hardly had time to juggle several mysterious relationships, and her friends said she was actually fairly shy until she got to know someone. The idea Claudia was out there meeting men all the time was just not factual. And the number of relationships that were reported in the press were greatly exaggerated. Peter said that in one paper, which he did not name, the claim was that there were 40 men Claudia had been involved with. The actual number spread over the course of six years was more like 12. It certainly wasn't news to her family or friends or even coworkers that she dated. Just two days before Claudia disappeared, she mentioned being tired at work because she had been out late on a date the night before. Dating 12 men in six years, that's what, too many year on average? That seems fairly reasonable for a single woman. And of course, her family didn't expect to know every single one of them. But even as this dozens of men theory was being debunked, the complicated nature of some of the confirmed relationships did come out. And when I say complicated nature, I mean the men had other partners, long-term partners. One relationship Claudia had was described by the police as a long-term casual relationship and that the man was in a serious relationship with someone else at points that overlapped with when he was seeing Claudia. There was another relationship that was short, but the man was married. So even though the straight slut-shaming slowed a bit, the home wrecker narrative replaced it. Claudia changed from being a sweet single woman from a good family who was snatched from the streets into a story of a wayward woman who may have had it coming. And there was a lot of gendered language used in the media. When are men referred to as scarlet or as home records? But they used both to describe Claudia. And this is something Jules and I discuss in more depth 
in the after show. So if you are interested in hearing more about our views and our experiences in this true crime space with the gendered reporting that we see, feel free to listen to the after show, which will be out on Wednesday. And can I even bring up the British press and gendered reporting without mentioning the Daily Mail at least once? The Daily Mail, particularly, printed quotes from anonymous sources in York who supposedly knew all about all sorts of affairs Claudia was engaging in. One of these anonymous sources claimed Claudia actually targeted, on purpose, married older men at the local pub. But the pub owner, who knew Claudia and knew the various people she socialized with, he said it was, quote, rubbish to paint her as some predator. He was willing to go on the record in the Daily Mail while the person smearing Claudia, that person wanted to remain anonymous. So guess which person got more attention in the article? Guess whose story came earlier in the article? Of course, the anonymous source. Even if the reporting is followed up, Partway through with someone countering the assertion, it is hard to unring a bell when you put out an accusation like that. And here's why public perception matters. Scandal will get some articles, for sure, but more in the tabloids than in the mainstream newspapers. When the public has a negative view of the victim, they stop paying attention, When they stop paying attention, so does the mainstream media. Tips that would otherwise come in don't. Someone who knows something doesn't have that metaphorical stick poking at their conscience every time they read the news. It also meant that people who Claudia may have been involved with, socially or romantically, were less willing to come forward. They might know about someone she was having an issue with, or a name no one else knows about. And they convinced themselves what they knew was probably not that important because they didn't want to get wrapped up in this sordid affair. They didn't want their names in the papers. They didn't want their family interviewed in the Daily Mail. Because yes, the tabloid published the names of the people Claudia was involved with, including a married man who had a short-lived affair with Claudia. The man's wife already knew about it because he had confessed to her and they separated before Claudia even went missing, but their story and interviews with people about that story were in the paper. Men who knew Claudia, whether they had an affair with her or not, wouldn't want their name out there because they didn't want to be associated or the hint of them being associated in an affair. They hesitated to come forward, and we know from the police that some people they wanted to question just wouldn't talk to them. They were finding the lack of cooperation frustrating, and they still do to this day. While I do think that Galloway's specific comments were poorly expressed and the Scarlet Woman narrative was offensive, I also understand a little bit of where the investigators were coming from at this point. They were investigating this as a homicide and believed whatever happened to Claudia was perpetrated by someone she knew. According to the Femicide Census released in 2020, but 
looking at stats from 2018, 61% of women in the UK who were killed by a man were killed by a current or former partner. So the odds were this was someone she knew and very likely someone she had been romantically involved with. They needed the public to come forward with the names of people Claudia was involved with who her family and friends might not be aware of. But then the police lost control of the narrative very quickly, and instead of the public coming forward, they didn't. This impeded the investigation rather than helped it. To try to right this ship, Claudia's parents and her friends did a lot of work with the media, being accessible for interviews and they tried to get the correct idea of who Claudia was out there. Aside from a serious relationship that had ended a few years before, Claudia's boyfriends and partners were all less serious, and she was on friendly terms with many of them, even after they stopped seeing each other. There was no one I've seen anyone come out and say acted jealous or acted controlling towards her. But even if someone did appear friendly on the outside, it didn't mean there wasn't jealousy at play. Maybe there was a man who wanted more of a relationship than Claudia was interested in, and he was angry at being told no. Maybe it's not a man at all, but a woman who was jealous. Because Claudia's regular hangout was a pub called Nag's Head, which was a few doors down from her house, the investigators did interview the regulars there, But none of the leads initially panned out. Again, the police did indicate to the media that there were men they wanted to talk to who were refusing to help, largely because of what we just talked about. They didn't want their relationship or possible relationship with Claudia in the press. Another avenue they pursued quite a bit farther from Claudia's front door was Cyprus. Claudia had connections there. She vacationed there often enough that she had friends, mostly among the expat community. One of these friends was the last person to text her before she disappeared. Also, tips came in that she may have been offered a job in Cyprus, and she had talked about relocating there permanently, whether this was something she really planned on or was more of a dream or fantasizing about running off to Cyprus, we don't know. But her passport was left behind, so they knew it was unlikely she traveled there, unless she traveled there illegally or was smuggled in. And of course, like with everything else in this case, the reporting turned into Claudia living some double life on Cyprus, where she had 10 lovers on the island. And then those who knew her in Cyprus said... That was absolutely ridiculous. A team of investigators did go to the island to speak with the people Claudia knew in September 2009, but eventually they closed the book on that possibility. It's not like someone from Cyprus, which is in the eastern Mediterranean, just popped over to the UK unnoticed to abduct and murder Claudia. No links were found between the people on the island and Claudia in the UK. In March 2010, a year after Claudia was last seen, a search began in York at some very specific places. One of these was a children's play area near where she worked. The police would not say what information had led them there, but they did say nothing came out of it. As the leads coming in dwindled more and more, they scaled back on how many officers 
were actively investigating the case in July 2010. Claudia's friend said she thought the investigation would take days and then they would know what happened. Instead, it stretched two months and then years until it was a cold case. That was until 2014, five years after Claudia went missing, when the newly formed Major Crime Unit was set up specifically to look at investigations that had stalled out and gone cold. Claudia's case was, of course, one of them. This reinvestigation looked into a few aspects, and one of them was forensics. Using newer and better technology, additional fingerprints were found in her house, and DNA was also found. Claudia's car had been in the shop at the time she disappeared, and it had been for a few weeks, so you wouldn't think it would hold any relevant evidence. But the investigators did find a cigarette butt in the car. They were able to get a male DNA profile off of the cigarette butt. Claudia did allow people to smoke in her car, so they checked the DNA profile against men in Claudia's life who may have been in her vehicle. None of them matched. This finding is significant for two reasons. One, there was a credible witness sighting of Claudia talking to a man who was smoking on the morning she would have walked to work. And second, if the DNA didn't match any of Claudia's known friends and acquaintances, it meant there was at least one other man out there who knew Claudia well enough to be in her car smoking. And that man did not come forward after any of the multiple public appeals for those who knew Claudia to talk to the police. They wanted to find out who that man was, but so far that has not happened. They have more recently announced possibly pursuing familial DNA to see if they can identify any of the contributors to the DNA in Claudia's house and to her car. Another thing the investigators did was take a much closer look at Claudia's phone activity from before she went missing. They noticed that in the weeks leading up to Claudia's disappearance, Claudia had been spending a lot of time in a suburb of York called Acom, that is west of the city center. Claudia had not spent a lot of time in that area before the weeks before her disappearance. While previous investigations did look closely at her known key locations, her home, the Nags Head pub, the university, this opened a larger area and a new pool of people she may have known. The reinvestigation also broadened the timeline. It had been believed that Claudia vanished on her walk to work. This was largely based on her work items not being found in her house. But there were many hours before that that Claudia was unaccounted for with no phone activity. Of course, she very well could have been sleeping that entire time since she did wake up early for work. But what if she had gone missing from her house in the overnight hours? They also did a fingertip search of the alley behind Claudia's house because it seemed like the most likely getaway path for anyone in or near her house that night. It's also possible that Claudia did go missing the night before, but she initially left willingly. One interesting thing noted was that there was another item from Claudia's house, her hair straightener, that was missing, and it wasn't something she typically took to work with her. 
So when I read this, I thought, well, if you're spending the night somewhere else and you plan to get ready for work at someone else's place, you would grab your straightener and bring it with you. But on the other hand, her toothbrush was still at her house, as were some other things she would have wanted to use to get ready for the day. So this is hardly my long-awaited Perry Mason moment where I crack the case on the podcast, but I do think it is something to consider. Another thing they did was take another look at the CCTV footage. If you remember earlier, I said they released CCTV footage of a man near Claudia's house on the morning of the 19th. Well, they rewound that tape a bit and found the evening before there were two men outside of Claudia's home at 7.15 on the 18th. One of the men walked down that side street that would lead to the back of Claudia's house where the alley was. A little bit later, he came back into view of the camera, and this time he appeared to be carrying a bag over his shoulder. As he walked up the side street towards the main road, another man walked down the main road, causing the first man to stop. But it's not like he had to stop. It's not like he was about to collide with the other man walking. He was plenty far enough back that he could have kept on walking and everything would have been fine. It seemed like he stopped purposely so the other person would keep going. Did he do that so he wouldn't be seen by a witness? The police want to speak with both men to either rule them in or rule them out, particularly the man with the bag. The footage really isn't clear enough to tell much about this man, except the man with the bag was in dark clothing and the other man was in lighter clothing. It was after the men were seen on CCTV that Claudia spoke with her parents. We know anything that happened would have happened after 8.30 at night. But the working theory in the case at this point was that Claudia was killed by someone she knew, and it had likely been planned. Whether she went missing on the 18th or the 19th is unclear. It's possible that this was very well planned, and that's why there was no evidence of what happened left behind. Or it could have been just planned, but then got a healthy dose of luck as well, which we certainly see in other cases. Part of that luck may be that the people in Claudia's life who do know something don't want to come forward because of the media perception. There is also a theory that the person in the March 18th CCTV with the bag is the same person who was on the March 19th CCTV early in the morning he would have been near Claudia's home twice in about nine hours. Maybe he lived in the area and he had good reason to be there at 7 p.m. and 5 a.m., but he has not come forward to establish that. Additional CCTV has been released, including showing a car driving down Claudia's street and stopping very near her house. They believe this was a light-colored Ford Focus or similar vehicle, and it stopped around 5.42 a.m. They wondered if the car stopped because it was picking Claudia up to take her to work. There was also a van across the street they hoped to identify the driver of. Based on other witness statements, they also put out a plea for two more men to come forward. 
One man who was in his 30s was seen going into Claudia's house a week before she disappeared. Then there was another man outside of Claudia's house on March 19th, around 6.45 a.m., so after Claudia should have already been at work. A witness said he was between 55 and 65 with gray mid-length hair, and he was wearing a three-quarter length sandy-colored raincoat. So with this reinvestigation, we have seen more forensic testing, we have seen more CCTV footage released, and we have also seen more public pleas for witnesses. And then there was another major break in the case that seemed like a very big deal, but actually led nowhere. And this was an arrest, actually more than one arrest. In 2014, a 59-year-old man, I will call James, was held on suspicion of murder, and a 46-year-old man was held on suspicion of perverting the course of justice for withholding information. At the time Claudia went missing, James was a lab tech at the university where she worked, and he also lived fairly close to Claudia, less than half a mile away. Because they lived close and worked at the same place, it has been said that James would occasionally drive Claudia to work, and they also both frequented the same pub. His home and his yard had been searched previously back in 2011, but he had not been taken into custody. The police went back to James's house in 2014 and did another major search. This one included moving paving stones as they searched his yard. They also brought in cadaver dogs, not just to his house, but also to his mother's house. And they processed his car, which was a Ford Focus, not entirely unlike the car seen outside of Claudia's house stopping the morning she went missing. It turned out James had been on the police radar from pretty early on when they were asking for tips on anyone Claudia may have been involved with. Someone at the pub said that they had seen James with his arm around Claudia before she went missing, and they came forward and gave that tip. It's not entirely clear what changed between 2009, 2011, and 2014 to have James taken into custody, but he was released without charge due to a lack of evidence. And then in 2020, a bunch of apologies to him showed up in the media outlets, largely tabloids, that had named him and provided some details that were not entirely factual. These apologies showed up around the same time with nearly the same verbiage leading me to believe he took legal action, though I couldn't confirm this. I'm just using context clues to come to this conclusion. A year after James's arrest, four men who were all linked to the Nags Head pub were arrested, but they were also released without charge due to a lack of evidence. The investigation even sent them to ACOM, digging up the cellar of a pub. It feels like this reinvestigation turned up a lot of new leads, but what has been released publicly, at least, feels like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle with only 100 pieces known, and few of those pieces actually connect to each other. However, the prevailing theory seems to have stayed the same, that Claudia was abducted and murdered by someone known to her. However, in 2017, an ex-police detective superintendent from Wiltshire brought up another theory. He made comments to the press about a possible connection between Claudia Lawrence's disappearance 
and a killer named Christopher Hollowell. The investigators heading up Claudia's case have called the link speculative and remained believing that Claudia had been killed by someone she knew. But Claudia's mother, Joan, met with the mother of one of Hallowell's victims after hearing about this possibility. So let me give you an overview of Hallowell's case so that you can see where the connections are. On March 19th, 2011, exactly two years to the day after it was believed Claudia disappeared, 22-year-old Sean O'Callaghan disappeared after last being seen on CCTV leaving a nightclub in Swindon at nearly 3 a.m. This walk home should have only taken about 10 minutes. When she did not arrive home by the morning, her boyfriend reported her missing. He had sent her a text around 3.30 a.m., and they were able to ping her phone at the Savernake Forest area when the text was received. So with this point in their map, the police began searching the woods. But they also realized it was about 30 minutes from the CCTV footage at the nightclub to the phone pinging in the forest. And that distance could only be covered in that time by a car. So the police checked CCTV between the two points and found a vehicle traveling that distance, a green Toyota taxi. The car was seen on the footage in the area of the club circling around. As Sean walked toward her home, the car pulled up to her. A bright flash of light came into view, which then made it impossible to see what happened next. But Sean was not seen on the CCTV after this moment, and the car pulled away from the curb. It was 2.57 a.m. The footage wasn't clear enough to get a license plate, but they did see something else on this footage. At one point, a police car drove past the taxi, and that police car had an automatic number plate reader installed. This is a camera that automatically reads and records the plate numbers of cars it passes. It is not generally installed for routine use, but rather to track organized crime. It can record plate numbers and then organize the data so they can follow the suspected terrorists or gang members through the country. The database stores the information for up to two years, and though it's mostly used for organized crime, it can be accessed by other law enforcement agencies for other reasons, and that's what they did here. The number was registered to 47-year-old Christopher Halliwell. The police then put him on surveillance before arresting him on suspicion of murder on March 24th, and he led them to Sean's body buried in a shallow grave about 20 minutes outside of Swindon. I know Big Brother government surveillance can be a controversial topic, but it did solve this case. And it solved another one as well. Halliwell made a second confession. He confessed to killing 20-year-old Becky Godden Edwards. He couldn't remember the year, knowing it was between 2003 and 2005. It is believed to be 2003, which was when Becky was last heard from. Becky's case did not get the attention of Claudia's case or of Sean's case, in large part because she was a sex worker who occasionally dropped out of contact with her family. There was a long delay between when she was last heard from and when she was reported missing. But Halliwell was someone Becky knew, and he apparently had become obsessed with her. Though Halliwell confessed and led the police to Becky's body, the charges against him in relation to Becky's case were dropped because the judge threw out the confession. He hadn't been properly cautioned before he spoke. 
The investigator who got the confession was actually disciplined for misconduct, but Becky's mother has pointed out that her body would not have been found without Halliwell's confession, and the investigator got that information the way he could get it. She was able to lay her daughter to rest, even if it wasn't done by the book. Halliwell was given a life sentence for Sean O'Callaghan's murder with a minimum of 25 years before being eligible for release. In 2016, after new evidence was discovered, Christopher Halliwell was tried for the murder of Becky Godwin Edwards. Even without his confession being admissible, he was found guilty and given a whole life sentence, meaning he will never get out. So why bring Halliwell up in the context of Claudia's disappearance? York and Swindon are three and a half hours away by car, so it's certainly not geographical proximity. The first thing we have to consider is, did Christopher Halliwell really not kill anyone from Becky's murder in 2003 until 2011? That seems unlikely. And he even made comments that seemed to hint that there are other victims. After Halliwell was in prison, he was questioned more about Becky's murder. He told the police he didn't want to keep coming back to this with different charges every few years. And then he said, quote, If I can clear this up in the next few hours, will everything else be forgotten? So what is everything else? It sounds to me like he was offering a deal. He would confess again to Becky's murder if they would just drop the investigation into any other charges. Or maybe he was offering to confess to everything if they would just not prosecute it and let him serve out his life sentence. Regardless of the interpretation, it does seem like he was admitting that there were more cases he could be tied to. There are a number of possible missing and murdered women from the area who might fit, and many have been discussed in the media. The one that stood out to me is Linda Razzle. She went missing on March 19th, 2002. So you might see where I'm going with this. Claudia went missing on March 19th walking to work. Sean went missing on March 19th walking home. And now we have another woman who went missing on March 19th. And Linda also appeared to go missing while walking. Linda drove herself to work, but due to the cost of parking around her workplace, Linda had taken to parking her car in a residential area for free. She would then walk 20 minutes to work. Linda never made it to work, yet her car was found in the neighborhood where she usually parked. We know Sean was killed by Christopher Halliwell, and Linda was linked in the media to Halliwell because he supposedly did some building work at her house when she had an extension put on. But that may have been an erroneous report, and there doesn't seem to be solid evidence that Halliwell did work on her house. But Linda's case is one I may cover in its own episode because I did get drawn into it Her estranged husband, who she had a contentious relationship with, to say the least, was convicted in her murder, even though her body wasn't found, and he has maintained his innocence. But it is a case with odd movements and a tight and confusing timeline that we could get into, which seems to be what we do here lately. Now, any links between the three women do seem to stop at the dates they disappeared and the circumstances that they disappeared while out walking. Nothing definitive has been found to link them together. And unless someone can place Christopher Halliwell anywhere near York in March of 2009, I agree with those who say his possible links to Claudia's disappearance seem really speculative. 
In 2018, it was announced that Claudia's case was then in what they call a reactive phase, meaning they would act on any leads that came in, but it was no longer being actively worked on. But behind the scenes, Claudia's father was working with missing persons advocacy groups on getting a new law passed, which went into effect in June 2019 and is informally known as Claudia's Law. This law covers something we talked about way back in September of 2020 when we covered the Paul Skiba disappearance. If you remember back then, Paul, his daughter Sarah, and his employee Lorenzo Chivers all disappeared at the same time. Paul's mother tried to keep Paul's mortgage paid, his business running, and everything else in the time before Paul could be declared dead. And then when Paul was eventually declared dead, his estate went to his surviving child, and Paul's mother ended up losing everything financially, on top of losing her son and granddaughter, because there was no law that allowed her to settle Paul's finances after he went missing, and there was no law giving her the power to do so. Claudia's law addresses that issue. It is formally called the Guardianship Missing Persons Act, it allows for a guardian to be appointed to manage the affairs of anyone who has been missing for more than 90 days. It's informally known as Claudia's Law because her father, Peter, championed for it on behalf of all families of long-term missing persons who have found themselves stuck in this financial and legal limbo. In honor of his work on behalf of families of missing persons, Peter Lawrence received the OBE. This is awarded to people who have made major contributions in their area, whether it's their line of work or their charity work. Peter Lawrence died in February 2021 at the age of 74. The family statement on his death read, quote, It is sad that nearly 12 years after Claudia's disappearance from York, Peter never found out what has happened to her. He was a very private person thrust into the full glare of the media, and despite a tireless campaign to find her, he also selflessly devoted himself to helping others with missing relatives through the charity Missing People, end quote. Months after Peter's death in August 2021, there was another search conducted in the woods and lake at Sand Hut and Gravel Pits, which is in New York, about 15 minutes from the city center. The investigators would not say what specifically sent them to search there. But it does sound like it was a pretty specific lead because they partially drained the lake and even cleared some trees in a particular area. After two weeks of searching, they said nothing obvious was found, but a small number of items had been brought in for further investigation. And that is the last development in the case to date. The lead theory remains that Claudia was killed on March 18th or 19th of 2009, and not only was the killer or killer someone Claudia knew, the police believe other people are knowingly withholding key information that would bring Claudia's family the answers they desire. And if that person is you, you can report your information to Crime Stoppers at 0800-555-111, or you can leave a tip online at crimestoppers-uk.org. While you can choose to remain anonymous, the more information you give to verify your tip, the more seriously they will take it. 
do the right thing and come forward. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>